Hello, I'm Kristen McDonald, and welcome back to Second Vision. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We're going to focus, today's topic is the focus on moving from fear to love, and I have the perfect person to discuss that with us. Robert L. Williams is an author, and he has his new best-selling book, Love is the Power, Moving Humanity from Fear to Love. And in his riveting, wonderful memoir, he accounts his experiences of having multiple near-death experiences and how this led him on a lifelong spiritual path. His love of the saxophone also led him to playing with the Beach Boys and some other top musicians around the globe. He's an inventor and educator. He's the developer of quantum technology. His spiritual path led him uh, to discovering transcendental meditation. He's also uh, patented and founded an app, which I believe reduces stress. And he is multi-talented and a beautiful human being, and I'm so blessed to have him on the show today. Welcome, Robert. How are you? I am wonderful. Kristen, thank you very, very much for inviting me on your show. You're also wonderful and extremely talented, so I'm honored. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you. Well, as I said, you know, when we just um, chatted, you know, a few minutes before we started, that you you have had such an incredible life story, uh, you know, thus far. And I can't wait, you know, for you to share us, you know, with us why you wrote this book and about your your near-death experiences and your spiritual path and and your your musical abilities with the saxophone and playing with the Beach Boys. So, so let's start. I mean, what what led you to to write this book? What inspired you? You know, Kristen, uh, I wrote it because more and more I was seeing people realize and talking with people who were realizing that life is more than any thought. Life is more than any emotion or any physical feeling. And there are several sources where we can read about higher consciousness, read about qualities of love, and read about our own essence. But what I was noticing is most people, well, for, and I include myself, we, we wake up from deep sleep and we begin to kind of play the stories of our lives. We begin to feel things, and we're excited about achieving some goal, and as we should be, and we're uh, maybe sad or angry about this or that in our lives. And our lives kind of follow those two particular uh, influences, what has happened in the past, what we're excited about in the future, and then the influence of our wounds and the influence of our uh, emotional reaction to suffering and cruelty. There it's is our another... script. It's the script that we tell ourselves. Yeah, exactly. So what I have noticed, though, in conversing and just talking with people honestly is that they're starting to feel that there is a consciousness that can include thinking, include emotions, include even our pain. That is, it's not up and away. It's not in denial of our minds or our bodies, but it is a way, it is, it is in a domain that is not bound by those. It's not bound by those. And that's what I call the domain of the heart or the domain of love. And, and so we, the publishers said the book should be called Love is the Power, and that's the title of the book. And there was this debate in the beginning you know, everybody uses love in a different way, the definition of love in a different way. And certainly power is is a uh, a word that can be debated. What does it mean? What what kind of power are you talking about? 
The book is about our innate, our uh, our essence that I am defining as love. And then the actual power that that essence has in our own evolution, in our own healing, in our own expressions from moment to moment, as we begin to associate more with that boundless power of love, then all the other types of love, I mean, I am a father, I love my daughter, I love my wife, I love my family, I love my music, I love, uh, you know, uh, Mexican food, I love all kinds of things. And at the basis, though, is is a understanding of self that is not restricted by any of those things. Those things become more, uh, I can even say, more glorified from my consciousness because those things are wonderful, but they're temporal. Now, what is not temporal? And that means they're limited in time. There's like a uh, ever-changing reality. There's something at the basis of that ever-changing reality that I call love in addition to those other kinds of love. And that repositioning of consciousness has had the, the power to heal my own body, has had the power to, uh, say, create miracles. And I thought, you know what, enough people are going to get this. Enough people are, are already there, so I'm going to write this book for them. That is just beautiful. I mean, tell us how it evolved. You you had near-death experiences as a child, right? You didn't quite fit in. You You had clairvoyant abilities and... Uh, I'm just getting into that in the beginning of your book. Um, yeah. For whatever reason, I, I I grew up as a very odd duck, and I was seeing things that other children, certainly adults, at least didn't know they were seeing. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Right, uh, right. You know, or they just... Without any drugs. <laughs> uh, exactly, yes. And by the way, yeah, I, I had my first interview a couple weeks ago, and they said, you know, you must have been, all this must have been because you were taking a lot of LSD or drugs. I was about to say, with the, the 70s and the Beach Boys. It was, and... the, it was the 70s, but I never, I was afraid, of, I, I, that's just not my route. I'm not even going to, you know, uh, right. there's, I'm sure there's positives and negatives about any, everything. Sure, but sure. It, it wasn't, it wasn't my, my, uh, my route. As a right. child, I was seeing um, nature spirits and beings in the backyard and and all kinds of things, and then auras or different kinds of lights and colors on, on people, around people. But so, you had a friend named Jing, right? In the beginning of the book, you talk about that? Named Jing, yes. <laughs> my my, my doctor's wife's name is Jing, so I laughed when I got from the book. And said, oh, Maybe they're related. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they're related, exactly. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, that's interesting. <clears throat> Jing was, was special in the sense that he communicated directly to me. The other things that I was, the other beings that I was seeing and the other nature spirits, they were sometimes kind of interested in me from a curiosity point of view, but they didn't come right up and communicate with me like that. Um, Jing was very uh, interested in me, which was just, you know, later in my life, I thought, wow, you know, I was I was very lucky. This, this being uh, would come while I was in the backyard, show me around. We had a big backyard with all kinds of plants and trees and <coughs> sandboxes and gardens from my, that my mom took care of. So it was a great place. It was natural. It was before fertilizers, or at least she didn't use any of that, but maybe that made no difference. But it was a natural environment for me 
to be with Jing, and Jing would show me around. And let me tell you just one story, because he would teach me things and show me that things were related to other things. So he showed me, for instance, that all the little snails, you know, had the same uh, spiral in their shell. And, And later on, that became relevant. It's the phi ratio, which is the very same ratio of our own DNA, and it's found all through nature. So he wanted me to, to see that every snail, although a little bit different, had the same kind of spiral, and then how plants grew. One of the most chilling experiences that I had at that time was it was raining, and Jing uh, brought me over to a, an, a position in the backyard where we saw this beautiful rainbow. We've all seen rainbows and how we just like, whoa, you know, how can we deny that that's not beautiful? So, okay, saw the rainbow. I wasn't the first. I won't be the last, you know, to see the rainbow. Right, then, right. Then, then about a month later, springtime, uh, my mom had the sprinkler going and I was playing and not really paying attention attention to the sprinkler. And he came up and he said, he said, look, 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 and he brought me over to a certain angle and there was the rainbow again it wasn't as it, it was this, it was but it wasn't because of the rain and the light it was because of the sprinkler and the sunlight and so his his point was where did the where do rainbows come from and i finally got it that rainbows are everywhere we can make one right here if i had a sprinkler and a and the proper kind of light those colors those beautiful colors will reveal themselves the rainbows are always there, and like that, there are so many things that we don't see that are always there, and we can't see them just simply because the environment and our consciousness are in the proper positions to reveal these rainbows, these colors, these information, these information fields about life and our own beingness. And that was one of the big. Uh, wow, you you don't. You don't have to wait for a rainbow, or you don't have to seek and find a rainbow. You can you can actually create your own rainbow. It's here and everywhere present. And that the the, the analogy, you, you know, we don't want to create rainbows in our room and get everything wet. So okay, it's the right. analogy. Right. But there are other frequencies of reality. A rainbow is a white light that's been uh, diffused into lower frequencies in the seven primary. Of those seven colors that you see in the rainbow are lower and lower frequencies of light, and they're beautiful. There are frequencies of life right here and now that our own consciousness, that our own hearts can experience, and ultimately are those very same life frequencies and the secrets of higher consciousness. Now, now, what was this like as a child? I mean, did did anyone believe you when you tell them, like whether it was your parental or you know friends that you did you share this with other people that you saw these you know um, angel like figures or I don't know how to refer to them as um, uh, yeah celestial beings maybe or celestial beings. Nobody believed. <laughs> Excuse me. Nobody. Believed. Nobody believed you. <laughs> did they send you to the, doc, the head doctor? <laughs> they did. Oh my gosh! It's funny. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know. So I, I learned to keep those experiences to myself. Right. I did have a little diary though. I started a diary when I was ten. But um, it was so funny. My mom. This was the fifties. Okay. So 
let's let's take our son to the doctor. He must be mentally ill. He's seen all these things. You know, he's talking right. about stuff that we don't see. And, and and now he's now it's he's too old to like have imaginary friends. He he should be seeing what everybody else is seeing. So he's still seeing. Right. They took me to the doctor, and I'll never forget sitting there on the doctor table, and she, woman doctor. She's like, well, okay, tell me what you see. You know, that's like this and that. <laughs> tell me about these and voices then, in your head. Yeah, tell me about these. Well, you know, and then so, so she, I think she took me for a brain tumor. It had me follow a light, you know, with my eyes and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And then she had me do my ABCs, and I was able to do my ABCs. Then she, she did my reflexes, right? Okay, so, you know, you sit there and you're, you hit the knee and the knee jumps out. <laughs> I mean, how on earth did that? So, so. I so everything was intact. Everything. I had the reflexes, so I'm standing. Right, right. You know, my, my, my knee jumped. She looked at my mom and says, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with your, your child. You know, it's just, and then I, she says, you know what, I keep these things. Hey, Bobby, Bobby, I think you should just keep these things to yourself. And I did. <laughs> so why did you writing this book? <laughs> I've waited a long time. Oh my goodness! But um, I, I also read that um, you got quite, you know, depressed and upset when these images, these celestial beings, disappeared. Uh, so, so tell us about that and how this, you know, led you to your and, and when you had the near-death experiences. Jean was my special friend, and when I, um, in hindsight, when I began puberty, that those ages and how the hormones start to change. He actually yeah. showed up and said, uh, this is it, I can't see you anymore. And I was <laughs> devastated. And he just bid me farewell, and I've never seen him since. I, I was able to see the, the nature spirits and auras, but those were just like things. They weren't friends. They weren't interacting with me. So I was very depressed. And during the times with Jing, I felt this lightness, this freedom. And so I began to seek other ways for that feeling. And I found it, make a long story short, I found it playing my saxophone and, and playing music. It wasn't every time I picked up my saxophone, but it was during those times where I was practiced enough or I knew enough of how I was playing or what I was playing. And I would transcend my relationship with my saxophone and I'd feel that same lightness of being, that freedom that I had felt with Jing. So that did it for music. I was... I couldn't wait to you were hooked. practice. I was hooked, exactly. Yeah. And and that, your lifelong, you know, ability with music and, and love of music led you to play with the Beach Boys. How exciting. Oh, my God. It was wonderful. It was How did that happen? Wonderful. I mean, and what was that like? Well, I, uh, it, the, uh, it, it really wasn't because I was the best sax player that the Beach Boys had ever heard. It was because... All the Beach Boys had learned transcendental meditation, and you remember the Beatles when they went over to Rishikesh. Yes, they, yes. They all learned, you know, <clears throat> big news. They all learned TM, and uh, along with the Beach Boys and Donovan and Mia Farrell, there was a lot of celebrities on on those courses. So the Beach Boys had learned TM. Maharishi, who is the founder of TM, had started mm-hmm. a university in Fairfield, Iowa called the Maharishi International University. And at that time in the 70s, it was fully accredited. You could transfer credits from other colleges and get PhDs and, and degrees. So um, I had gone through my first dark night of the soul, which was 
my jaw began to lock up and I couldn't play my saxophone like I wanted to or the number of hours that I wanted to. And when the, uh, it's called the temporal mandibular joint, the TMJ. Yes. <laughs> I think we've all now. I'm a grinder. I get it. Everybody grinds, right? <laughs> That's so, right. Yeah, well, when I was seven years old, I had an accident with my bicycle, and I fell off and kind of broke my jaw, and it didn't grow back properly. So this little joint that I uh, need to play the saxophone with a specific embouchure was being stressed because of that accident. So here I am, third year of college at Cal State Hayward, Cal State East Bay, as a music major, and I was really good, and I was gigging in rock and roll bands and jazz bands, and my whole life was laid out ahead of me. I was going to get my degree, uh, go on the road first after graduating, and teach music later on, get married, have five kids, and live happily ever after. That was my life. Your but, first vision. That's what I call it with people, your first vision of your life. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so I'm 19, 20, and third year of, of college, and, and my jaw had been hurting for a long time. One morning I woke up and it couldn't open. My mouth couldn't open. Oh, and that was painful. Horrible. Totally painful. And I had to go to the ER and they shot me with something, some tranquilizer in my mouth. But still, there was something going on. So I'm going to kind of skip through that story because they finally, the, the TMJ specialist just said, um, well, you, all that you have to do is just give up your saxophone. You know, this is the 70s. Learn guitar. Everybody plays guitar, you know. And I'm sitting there going, wait a minute, you don't understand, Doc. I have my whole life planned out all the way to the end. I right. want to be a musician playing the saxophone, not guitar. You know? And and he says, well, there's nothing we can do if you continue to play. This will continue to hurt and get worse and worse. And, you know, you'll wake up and it'll be locked and you have to come get a shot. So I was just devastated. What I did was reduce my playing to the point where it wasn't, locking but it was still hurting anyway so then i i learned tm and that gave a whole new perspective on pain and life in general i loved the effortless nature of the technique and then back to marishi and the university so i enrolled at, at uh, miu maharishi international university in 1976 and was a student there, and the Beach Boys wanted to do something on campus to promote the university, to promote TM. And once they, and so they built a studio, and it was the students knew that the Beach Boys were here recording, but we were off limits and security, we couldn't go. We just kind of was excited that they were over there, right? Then I got a little note in my student mailbox: show up at this building tomorrow, bring your saxophone. What? So it was one of the producers of the Beach Boys, and he said, we were going to fly in saxophone players from L.A. because it's time to to put that on the, these songs we're recording. But we heard that there's a really good saxophone player on campus, so why why not? We want you to try out. So I'm like, oh, my God. So I tried out. I auditioned. I got the gig. I was on the album. So that's the MIU album. What a <clears throat> excuse me, I had something caught in my throat. What a thrill! I mean, I, I love the Beach Boys. I saw them twice in concert. I mean, who doesn't love the Beach Boys? You know, who doesn't love the Beach Boys. And so, but the very last day, and I knew it was the last day, I thought I've got to ask. So I went to Mike Love, the lead singer of the Beach Boys, who was there, yes. and 
I said, uh, Mr. Love, oh, call me Mike, call me Mike. I'll call, okay, Mike, um, you know, I know this is my last day recording and everything, but I don't have enough money to continue on being a, a student here at MIU. I'm just wondering if I could tour with you guys and play in your band, you know, while you're touring. <laughs> and and uh, he said, uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, we lost our sax player. So, uh, you know, so they had you know, the horn section, a trumpet, two saxes, and a trombone. And he says, we lost one of our sax players. He says, oh, you know, check with so-and-so. And I don't think there'll be a problem. So I checked with so-and-so, and the next thing I know, I'm touring with the Beach Boys, doing these concerts, and playing out my live dream. We only, concerts were only an hour and a half. I only had to practice half an hour. So the jaw was no problem. And here I am <clears> on stage <throat> with the Beach Boys. Unbelievable. Oh, How long did that last? Three years. Three oh, years. And, incredible. Yeah, and I, I have wonderful Brian Wilson stories. Uh, Brian Wilson, the genius of the Beach Boys. Oh, and he's deaf yeah. in one ear, isn't he? I mean, and he deaf had, in one he ear. Such a story himself. I mean, he he um, uh, did, did, he he did a lot of drugs, I guess, right? And and also well, had a, a, a breakdown of some sort. And yeah, not at first. He was just uh, an, a brilliant, talented, totally brilliant, totally talented, brilliant musician. Mm-hmm. Um, that was literally in competition with the Beatles for a while in the 60s. The Beatles and the mm-hmm. Beach Boys were neck and neck in terms of yes. sales and so forth. Um, unlike Paul McCartney and John Lennon and George and Ringo, who were very collaborative and they loved each other, and they, John and Paul were the main writers, but it was a more of a group effort. Unlike that, the Beach Boys were all about Brian Wilson. Brian Wilson was the genius. He heard all the parts. In his head, he had perfect pitch, and so everything was revolving around Brian. And then there was this tremendous pressure to compete with the Revolver album by the Beatles and so forth. Yes. And he, he created um, the Pet Sounds, which has now ascended to one of the best albums of all time, according to Paul McCartney, and then the great song, Good Vibrations. But Sgt. Pepper had been released, and... Um, Abbey Road and and the Beatles had stole the uh, the competitive nature of of that time, and in the middle of Brian's great work of art, Pet Sounds, they said, you know what, your music can't compete with this, and there was all this. And the other Beach Boys were, you know, you're not you're not we're not sounding like the Beatles, or you know, this is still surf music or still unconventional music. People are not going to get this. It was during that time that he started taking drugs. And there's a whole story. So if anybody is interested, there's a movie called Love and Mercy mm-hmm. with uh, Jim Cusack and other great actors about that time. And he's got his own book out. But so I just kind of was in there at that time and saw Brian's genius. I was well, What a time. Do you think that Brian was more talented than Paul McCartney or vice versa? Paul McCartney had John Lennon. John mm-hmm. Lennon had Paul McCartney. Mm-hmm. You know, and they had George, who was always offering great ideas, and Rinko, who was always offering. I was in those Beach Boys recordings, and no offense to, well, with the exception of Mike, most of the time people would just sit around, and it was all up to Brian. It was all up to Brian. I mean, they weren't rude, you know. They, they were right. around right. in the beginning, but they really depended upon Brian's brilliant brilliance. And so, hard to say who's more talented. 
I think Brian had more responsibility and more pressure and did more mm-hmm. than, for instance, Paul, because Brian was able to hear all the orchestra pieces, all, this, right. all the different voices. Beatles had Brian Epstein, and um, who a uh, 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 brilliant, uh, um, am I getting this right? Who was the engineer for the, the Beatles? Somebody out there knows. It wasn't Brian Epstein. It was da-da-da, their engineer, uh, yeah. George Martin. George Martin, uh-huh. thank you. Uh-huh. Whoever told me that telepathically, George Martin. <laughs> George was a musician and a, and a producer, so he helped Paul and John with the strings and the different sounds and all those wonderful songs they did. Brian had none of those kind of help. So, and, you know, they you went know. through kind of a tumultuous time, too. I guess Dennis, didn't he die um, in a, a car accident or something? Or they, it was kind of a... Yeah, their lives. My gosh. Yeah, their drowned. lives. Yeah, he yeah. drowned, right, exactly. And, and um, Carl, the three Wilson brothers, Dennis drowned, Carl died of a heart, uh, excuse me, cancer. Brian is still around. And still right. Brilliant, and in my opinion, still one of the most... What, what a fabulous experience. And what are some of the songs that we can we can look up that you were, you know, during the time that you were playing with them, you know, you're on the album? When, when I was playing with them, the album I was on, there were no hits. Brian was in his dark years. Mm-hmm. When we went on the road, of course, all the hits were played, and so I played those. But I was in the backup band, so I don't want to take any credit. Oh, for, sure, sure. But, it, it, but uh, you know, I, I just played the, the horn section. I think the most wonderful experience that is relative to our, our topic today, though, is during the concerts, um, there would be this magic moment where the musicians... Of course, the Beach Boys and then the backup musicians and the audience, which sometimes 20, 30,000 people or more, and the ticket sellers and the security people and the guards, we would all kind of click into this oneness. And it was, we've all, I think we've all experienced that at concerts or in, in group events where definitely we're, we're not thinking like, okay, we're all singing good vibrations together, we're all swaying together, we're all in this together, and that's a, a state of elation. It's a higher state of consciousness. We're not thinking, back to my topic, if you're part of that group experience, I'm not going to be thinking, wait a minute, I wonder if that guy over there agrees with me politically. Or maybe that guy right. over there <laughs> is, is trying to take something from me, and maybe the deal's wrong. You know, we are not thinking, we're, we're not emotionally... Like, oh, I am having an emotion right now. We are in a higher... We're not in our heads. We're in our hearts. There you go. I just went to a seminar. I was telling Dick earlier uh, at University of Santa Monica, and it was just, it was uh, spiritual psychology this weekend. And it's the same thing they were teaching, you know, from political debates to everything. That's just the higher consciousness when you're all on the same plane in that state of love, you know, you, you can't get into conflict. It's just, it's a beautiful feeling. Exactly. And then people... After the concerts, after the after the concert, after the encores, people would walk out in this higher state, and I, I was able to kind of come back on stage, and nobody cared, you know. Brian, everybody had to get off because of the fans, but I was able to to see. Everybody was in an ordered state, you know. There wasn't any fighting, or you know, it was a higher state of collective consciousness. And then, okay, people go back to their lives; they lose that that reality of of the heart that's what i'm calling that experience 
the rea- reality of the heart rather yeah. than the mind. And we get confronted with our pains, those thoughts and uh, impressions that come up again, and, and we, we lose that state, which is okay for a while. Eventually, humans are going to lock into this higher state, and that's where the phase transition of consciousness and the next highest good of reality for human beings will be evident, and it, I, I believe it's going to happen. Well, well ha- what is this trademark that you developed, um, quantum technology, TM? So, so tell us about that. Quantum code technology. And, um, God, I, I just brushed over. I was getting sick, and I had a near-death experience. Yes, I, I yeah. wanted you to, to account yeah. what happened, and you know, because we kind of digress. The music is so fascinating for everyone, you know, but but so it's a near-death experience. So, so, so please tell us what happened. You know, I. I was given six months to live, and the doctor said they didn't know what was going on, but my liver had failed, my kidneys, my, my lungs were congested, my bladder was, you know, everything was just shut my down. My God, you just shut down. How old were you then? I was 25. Oh, my goodness. I'm six foot three, and I was down to 120 pounds, 118 oh. pounds, and I was, I was bedridden at this time, could barely move around. The doctor said, we just got to get you in the hospital. We don't know what's going on, but we've got to get you in the hospital or you'll be dead in six months. It was one of those really deep intuitions. Don't go to the hospital. Now, I'm not saying there's anything bad with hospitals. I'm not one of those, you know, you can't go to I understand. You know, I had a broken arm. There's other places. You're not a Christian types. scientist. I got I'm it. Not. <laughs> All right. But I just, I had, because of my clairvoyance, I think, and because of my Intuitive ability, yeah. I just surrendered to God. I didn't have like one God, or I, you know, I just surrendered to the higher force, Power. The higher love, higher love, like Stevie Winwood's song. Yeah, higher love. I just surrendered. I, I had faith, so I literally stumbled and hit my head on the on something and and stopped breathing, and it was out of my body, looking at my body. So I know time is limited. I wrote my book about the details of that experience, the near-death experience. But you asked about the technology. So when I was coming back from... Well, excuse me, though. Did you, you know, a friend of mine, I had him on the show, too. He had a near-death experience. He he literally saw his life from another, you know, looking down on his own life. I mean, did you have some sort of a, you know, um, go to the other side and, you know, come back feeling or looking at your life? Or can you just explain that moment? When you call it a near-death experience? The first experience was seeing my body. The, the second, I suppose, or simultaneous, was this thought that I was dying, and and I wasn't afraid. I didn't resist any of that, any mm-hmm. thought of dying. So it wasn't. In, so then I went to complete light. There wasn't anything else but light. Then I was given a choice, and I and the communication was that I had a purpose. So I, then I began to descend, if you will, or come back into my physical, psychophysical body. But in the process of descending from the light, these words don't quite do it justice. I saw then, that's when I saw um, not only like past lives, but other souls and soul groups and archangels and beings of light and angels and beautiful, beautiful symbols and geometric ratios and 
I, I saw different domains, and the the closest domain to my physical body was my own my own thought forms, my own impressions of myself, quote unquote, which is very limited, you know. But me, you know, now I'm Robert, born in 1954, and Beach Boys, and all the stories that I can tell. Those are just a, 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 a drop in the ocean of who we are, a drop mm-hmm. in the ocean. In the body, though, in my body, there was about five minutes or maybe less where the, I didn't feel any pain, but I was in my body, was able to wiggle my toes, I was breathing, and I was listening to the sounds of nature. Because I lived in Santa Barbara, beautiful, by the ocean, gardens, nature, and I remember hearing the birds chirping and the insects making their sounds in the oceans and the, wind, the wind. And at that point, I recognized or understood completely to that extent of the cosmic intelligence of nature, that innate intelligence that was governing those birds, the insects. All of that at once was also governing the force between my, my own life force and my heart beating. So that same intelligence was me now, breathing and heart beating. There wasn't any separation, which I, which is obvious, really. We're not separate from nature. We come from nature. We are in tune with those laws. Or yes, we're we, all energy. Or we become out of tune with those laws, and that's one of the gifts, you could say, of humanity, or human beings can choose their thoughts can choose where their attention is going or where it's placed. And quantum code technology, when I was coming back into my body, there was a domain of symbols and geometries. And I later discovered in books, it wasn't anything metaphysical, these symbols show up in all the indigenous cultures, in the art. They show up in all the, most of the uh, traditional or ancient religions. They're, they're in there. They're, like, coded in there. In ancient Sanskrit, they're called mandalas. Mm-hmm. Each mandala has a, is a different symbol or a different representation for a chakra and its higher functioning value. So that's making a long... That took me 20 years to, to figure out that these symbols are like musical symbols. If you're in the right state of consciousness and you look at a page of music with a treble cleft and five lines, musicians know this, and they see a note, maybe a, you know, a quarter note or an eighth tri- uh, triad. When they look at that, they don't, they don't see the symbol, they hear the music. So the symbols right. are symbols for our own aspects of consciousness, for our own potential of consciousness. Right. So when we are looking... And they're found in nature. So when we look at a sunset or we look at the eclipse or we look at uh, gardens and natural, those symbols, those ratios are everywhere in there. They're everywhere. And there's fundamental frequencies. So what I was able to do with the help of William Tiller, uh, who was the chairman of the Department of Material Science at, Sciences at Stanford University, who studied crystals and crystal lattice structures from a very conventional position, he worked with me to create crystal oscillators, various crystal oscillators that would be able to generate those same frequencies, those same codes that are found in nature and in our own bodies and in our own DNA. So 
that's what quantum code technology is, and we were able to figure out with help of really smart people that is not, I don't know anything about how to make an app work on your cell phone, but other people do, and we were able to find a way to broadcast those frequencies through an app that you can download for a dollar and a half or something on the Apple Store. So that That is is, so fascinating. I read about the app, and I want to get it. Uh, because it reduces stress, right, by 30% or something? Yeah, we did a two-year study. Independent Beverly Rupick, who's a biophysicist from UC Berkeley, did a two-year study, and very good study, controlled. Nobody knew whether they had the real app or a placebo app, and the controls of their own lives were measured. So the heart rate variability is now a method for medical doctors, cardiologists, to see what state of health your heart is in, whether you're stressed or not, via your heart rate. And it found, Beverly found that with the app on, your heart rate variability went up by about 30%, which is another way of saying stress went down by 30%, which is remarkable. So it's these natural frequencies. We we weren't developing an app for uh, medical reasons. We're developing an app to resonate with these natural frequencies that are already there in you, in me, in our bodies, in nature, in the oceans, in the plants. That's all it does. It resonates with those very same frequencies, and lo and behold, our own physical hearts were strengthened. So, that's so if I use this app, if I download this app, or anyone listening today, that is it a practice to reduce stress? I mean, no, no, how will... it's just frequencies. If they're like, it's just, like silent music. I see. Turn it on and you just go about your life. And it's, it's like being out in nature instead of being surrounded by those, you could say, potentially harmful frequencies from the cell phone or potentially harmful frequencies from electricity and power lines and man-made things. And, and will it de-stress you in the process? Yeah. yeah. It's just because it's, it's enhancing your own innate values of life, your own innate intelligence, your own innate... Pre- of course, of course. That's yeah. amazing. What's the name of the app again? It's the Heart... Heart Plus. So the Heart with the plus sign, like the addition sign, so H-E-R-T Plus. So if you go to the App Store, you have an iPhone, it's the App Store, you just search for Heart Plus, and then 108 Heart Plus comes up. I'm going to do it. A- I'm going to tell my landlord, too. He's a um, cardiologist. He'd be very interested. Great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you're the... Sure, go ahead. Once you get the Heart Plus, you can actually... There's a little... uh, It shows shows the world turning, and you turn it on, and you probably will feel the effects, but also say science behind this. You can go down and poke, uh, you know, the scientific research and, you know, poke different things that we're, we're doing to raise consciousness on that same app. That is fantastic. Now we're, you know, we've uh, almost run out of time because you and I could talk forever. <laughs> There's so much to cover. Absolutely. Um, but I would love to send people to your website and repeat the name of the app. And I'd also like it, love it, if you would just leave them with one more thing about meditation and how it's changed your life. You know, your quantum technology. Loveisthepower.com. Loveisthepower.com. That that can that leads you to the App Store or the Google Store for Androids. It so it will get you over to Amazon if you want to buy the book. 
and there's other things on that on that website, loveisthepower.com. Um, you know, what I'd like to leave with, leave you with, and I hope we can talk more. Kristen, I think you're Yes, awesome. I would love to. You're wonderful. Oh, so, the feeling, like I, I said, it's a mutual admiration club. <laughs> and, your, and your community, your listeners, your audience, the people that work with you, this is an example of group consciousness that is radiating out can I say good vibrations, or can I say love? Yep. I, both are the So we are part of a phenomenon of life right now. And as we begin to understand more of who we are, we begin to influence others automatically. There's science behind this. We don't have to go teach everyone. We don't have to convince all the bad people who are doing cruel things. We are ourselves more and more influential by our own truth, by our own relationship of love, with our own wounds, with our own uh, levels of compassion, with our own love for others. As we begin to cultivate that and, and release the obstacles or the thought forms in place of that true love, we can make a big difference. We can make a big difference, and that's what you're doing Kristen, with your show and your audience is doing so, I want to leave with saying thank you. Thank you. Oh, bless you. And thank you because it's people like you that make the show happen, you know, and, and if it is so true. Energy is so contagious, you know. We all need to live in that state of consciousness, and if we all thought that way, we wouldn't have any of the unrest in the world, you know. It's unfortunate. But, Robert, you're, I can't wait to finish the book, and I hope uh, you're listening today. You will check out Robert's book. Uh, Love is the Power, Moving Humanity from Fear to Love, and read his fascinating story of his near-death experience and his uh, experiences with the Beach Boys and so much more about, you know, physical, mental, spiritual, and emotional energy. So bless you. Thank you for listening. I'm Kristen McDonald with Robert L. Williams, and have a wonderful day.